You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spirisavet and Elliot Goldberg. Hi, Elliot. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. So, a first time for season four. You want to tell us your current state of characterness? Who are you feeling most like at this point? And- uh, I find this question gets harder and harder with each season not because of the show just because of the distance from my original watching (laughs) like to prepare for this episode i had to go back and watch four episodes to like get back into it and some of the characters aren't quite who they seem to be yeah so so it's hard to know i still i think this has been my answer i still want to live in jason's shoes because he just has such an interesting take on the world. <laughs> this is a good Jason episode that we're going to talk about. Too. Yeah. I'm finding myself more and more interested in a Janet character who is becoming more complex and more, you know, there was a way she was emotionless. And the character still has flat, like there's emotional depth emerging. And I like that, you know, and, and she's assuming, you know, she's bought in to this, work that you know our friends are doing to try to better existence or the universe and it strikes me as as artificial intelligence (laughs) she might not care but she cares which is intriguing to me i don't know that that makes me want to be like her but it makes me think about you know what it's like to be in it right now all right so you said you would like to be more like jason yet yeah that made me you're feeling sort of janet like in this artificially intelligent way (laughs) sure Sure. i mean it's the time of artificial intelligence right there's been new big developments since we were last on the podcast yes you could do a whole podcast from that chat artificial you know the artificial intelligence thing just type in jewish podcast about the good place season four episode whatever and see what it does you know, I wonder if there are any events where Darcy Carden has been like invited to either speak as Janet or as herself or interact as Janet with, a, uh, with an AI thing. That would be cool. We could be the be first. Interested. Yes. Yeah. I heard her on a podcast somewhere talk about being on The Good Place and being on Barry at the same time and playing totally different characters and the, you know, the differences between the groups, but nothing about AI. Maybe she has a new, she has a, you know, a new role to take on. She would be the ideal podcaster about about AI issues. As I've said in the last couple episodes, we are dating this podcast because some some of you will be listening many years or Earth years after we publicize this, and you'll be on a spaceship traveling between two different star systems, <laughs> and this AI stuff will seem very quaint to you. So, yes. Right, right. There's spoilers in this podcast, and it's not evergreen. I guess oh, so. I have to say, I've been thinking about this because since we already apologized to the future people listening, you know, centuries from now, this is a big Jason week because this weekend, like the Jacksonville Jaguars won a playoff game and they're going up against the Kansas City Chiefs. Like, this is a great time for the Jacksonville Jaguars. (laughs) And I've been sad for him, not just because he's on a pause with Janet, but when she like broke up with him, she also told him that Blake Bortles was cut, which I thought was not good timing. <laughs> and given that the different timeline that they're supposed to be in the afterlife, I was confused about how at that moment Blake Bortles was cut since they're not in the traveling through time the way we are. So I, I was puzzled by all of that, but they're in the playoffs. So Jason, wherever you are, <laughs> go that Jaguars. <laughs> all right. All right. Sorry, I had to get that out. That's great. All right. So we're going to plunge into a, into a Good Place episode. So, Ellie, give us a summary. All right. I will do that. Today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 43, Tinker Taylor, Demon Spy, written by Cord Jefferson and directed by Morgan Sackett. And here's the episode summary. A game of Pictionary is cut short when Janet brings Chidi's horrifyingly bad drawing of a horse to life. One of the demons, Glenn, defects from the bad place and tells Eleanor that Michael is actually the demon Vicky in a Michael suit. 
The group separates Michael and Glenn and interrogates each of them to get to the bottom of things. Michael admits to a few lies he had previously told. Janet's demon lie detector device causes Glenn to explode into blue goo, which will take months to come back together and reconstitute. Michael is unwilling to prove who he is by taking off his suit because he does not want to ex- the humans to see his true form, a monstrous fire squid. And he's about to point the goo device at himself to prove he's toiling the truth when Jason reveals that Janet is actually the real imposter. She's actually a bad Janet who switched places earlier and has been sabotaging the experiment. Eleanor accepts Michael's selflessness as proof of his identity. Michael and Jason set off for the bad place to rescue Janet. All right. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff to fan Rav, fan rabbi about here. And there were so many Janet dimensions and actually, which probably are even more interesting given what we find out at the end about which Janet it is that we're looking at. I always love, I love when Janet is sort of like put upon sort of, you were talking earlier about, you know, Janet, you know, the talking about with Brent, he's always asking for beer and she's always, and says, I'm just glad he stopped asking me to go to dinner so we could discuss my career. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, that is so creepy. It is so creepy and hilarious at the same time. Yes. Well, that's what his character is for, to be creepy and hilarious. (laughs) Well written, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then her her thing about the describing like how she's going to make the the lie detector while also, you know, they're they're asking her if she could do this. The Janet babies are still draining me. And I just had to put down Daisy, the horse block. Oh, yeah. It was exhausting emotionally and physically. And she just like this. She fought back. Right. Oh, I wonder, thing. given what we know at the end, like she says, I'm not going to share details. And then she has to. Yeah. At first, you think it's Janet sort of processing this, you know, horrifying experience that she had. But then at the end, I wonder, like, is it bad Janet trying to share gory details that she didn't have to to disturb <laughs> all the people and set them off? Like, it's hard to know how to read that scene, <laughs> knowing what we know by the end of the episode. Yes, it's super, yeah. <laughs> and then when Bad Janet is finally Bad Janet, I do like that last line, where's the real Janet? She's in the bad place. She's probably wiping her butt with her own butt. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the crass, the crass humor moments that the show goes through sometimes. Yeah, it was, it was good for that, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what is it? pig urine or whatever whatever oh, yeah. Yeah. What, how does jason know see this is why he like knows things like what goes with what alcohol goes with pig urine and he's he knows which rum coconut rum does he say yes and how does he how does he know that yes and he doesn't miss a beat boom he's got the oh, suggestion yeah. of when you're serving pig urine with alcohol this is the perfect one i got the biggest laugh Though partly because it was unexpected, it, it didn't really flow. It wasn't really. It was in the episode. It wasn't a part when Jason says he's good at solving puzzles, and then he says, "I solved the word find in thirty <laughs> seconds." But he's just he's found all the words on the list of words and not, yeah, not in the puzzle. That was great. <laughs> yeah, that that gave me a chuckle a little bit. That was my big one. I found in this episode, it's funny. It wasn't a major part of the plot. I don't know if it's funny, but. I loved the cheaty Eleanor scene in the middle. That was my favorite piece where Mm. he's like doing his own personal sort of self growth about that. He can't draw a horse. Yeah. (laughs) And she knows how to take care of him while still in her role as architect. It's a sweet scene that helps them both. Even though it's probably hard for Eleanor. I really, I really like that moment. Mm. And in an episode that sort of, I don't know. I don't know what it was there for. You know, I guess the plot arc now is the demons are still trying to wreck the experiment and our friends are trying to stop them, which wasn't as compelling to me as other arcs. I like that little cheaty Eleanor moment stuck in the middle. I yeah, wish it was been, nice. I wish there had been more of that and a little quicker on the other stuff. Yeah, this was kind of a replay of the, the Kierkegaard, the Leap to Faith episode with the the roast before it was kind of a, a lot of you know a lot of the good stuff in season four is that kind of circling back you know loop, 
looping back to um, yeah. the stuff from before and trying to add. But yeah, I think we're in a, a little bit of a stretch of the season where we've got a few episodes that are there. Yeah, a little more sort of plot moving. Yeah, they were not they were not written for the purpose of this podcast. Although we're going to definitely make something out we're of it. We're going to try. Yeah, this line when they talk about how, you know, I think it was about Glenn being gooified. You know, demons can't die. He'll slowly reform himself over a few months, passing through all the stages of demon growth. Larva, slug monster, spooky little girl, teenage boy, giant ball of tongues, social media CEO, and then finally demon. (laughs) It's a little bit of biting the hands who feeds you. They had a little Instagram burn, I think, also there, too, where Michael's trying to justify his lies and he talks about it. It was an inspiration. All of Instagram. Yes. So like, so great running into you. We should get coffee sometime. <laughs> right. I, um, I don't know if so. you find this. I, I become very self-conscious about saying to people, we should get together sometime when I don't. Oh, because don't of this episode? Them. Well, I don't think because of this episode. I just, maybe it's partly the role of the congregational rabbi where, where partly, right, oh. it's impossible in the time in the foreseeable future to get together with absolutely everybody. So I try to convey my indeed desire to see everybody with not promising. Without to, committing. I could, I could have coffee five times a day with people and not fulfill that kind of commitment. So. Right. It is true. I had a coffee date once with a colleague of ours who I won't name. And we met in the morning. I met, went to their shul, went to the morning service to Shacharin and we had coffee after, but I discovered then, well, they said, I'm not really a coffee drinker, but I went out and bought you (laughs) Starbucks, you know, the instant packs and made a cup of coffee to me and (laughs) good for me. I just remember my takeaway was saying, you know, my was, you know, we could have had tea. It wasn't about the coffee. (laughs) We made coffee because like we wanted to connect and spend some time together. Like you didn't need to go. You didn't need to make it an errand. You could have hosted (laughs) tea or even water. I'm here for you. Not coffee. <laughs> yeah, they're saying that. Yeah, coffee. Yeah, it stands for. It's not <laughs> right. They took correct. my invitation to coffee was taken very literally by my <laughs> friend and colleague who became you know host of the event who didn't drink coffee or have any <laughs> in his office. So <laughs> you have to be careful about that. Yes, yes. See, yeah. it's so fraught to just talk about having coffee is such a fraud. Uh, you know, fraud yes. offer. I have to say, this was, I mean, this was funny at the beginning in the Pictionary game about Mariah Carey's lower back butterfly tattoo. And and then that, you know, should have gotten that sooner. I wrote my college thesis on that back tattoo. And it was making me think about how the one idea I had that I've like seriously thought about sending to Saturday Night Live was I thought a game of Pictionary where the contestants are all like expressionists like Picasso and Kandinsky and where you just see all these scribbles and they say like, angst, ennui, you know, oh, you know, (laughs) that's the extent of it. I wanted to pass that along to the writers. So Nice. Maybe they're listening. (laughs) That's right. There's some crossover. Make sure you uh, write for Saturday Night Live. (laughs) All right. Maybe, maybe. But when you meet them, don't invite them. Don't Heart by saying let's have coffee sometime because you might yeah not. on so many levels you know <laughs> i could go i could go off the rails <laughs> yeah i was struck by that list michael's list of like the stages of demon growth does it seem like was he implying that social media executives are demons like in human costumes and they've infected earth because it's a stage of their development like every demon has to spend a <laughs> I'm the human in this role. I found a lot of things in this episode uh, were written for the laugh or to move the plot forward. Like I had questions about like the timeline, like is this real, like, you know, Janet's been talking since the beginning of the season about how hard it is to run this neighborhood. Hmm. But then there's, then Janet's gone and it's bad Janet who's running it for her and trying to mess it up. And she gets handcuffed and like taken out. And then the neighborhood doesn't fall apart. Yes, which is what I want to loop like, back how's to. Hap- how does it keep happening? Yes. Well, actually, that's, you know, if you don't mind, I think I want to sort of start there. So I was, I know this was sound a little left fieldy, maybe. When the podcast began, I really thought, you know, ethics is about ethics. And there's plenty to talk about in terms of chuva and the process of of doing that and kind of the the microscope around all that, those processes of returning and and uh, repairing oneself and all of that. And I didn't think that the podcast would ever deal with theology at all. 
And uh, I guess conveniently forgetting that we've got Michael and Janet and then Sean and all these demons. So we have these kind of eternal beings around. And, you know, that exact thing that you're saying, Elliot, sort of got me to thinking about this, that we really do have, right? Michael is essentially detained and Janet is you know, certainly put upon. And, uh, and then they realize, as you're saying, that she's not really there. But the humans do not seem to think the whole thing is going to collapse. And we've seen the neighborhood implode on itself when they left in season two and all that kind of stuff. Or, or when, when Eleanor had her crisis in the void and, and not only did she, her, she dissolve, but like everything around, even the void itself started to dissolve. But here things kind of go. So it made me think of this issue which is kind of captured in this uh, statement that appears a couple places one of which is in the the Talmud Yerushalmi it is Chagiga 1-7 for those keeping score and looking up and it is a statement by Rabbi Chia Bar Abba and he grabs a verse from the prophet Amos Amos and and he says God says basically I'll give in on the fact that people abandon me as long as they keep my Torah for if they abandon me and keep my Torah the leavening in it would bring them closer to me. So I've always been an interesting idea, I think, that I've been drawn to, that that the theology is maybe not the grounding of the ethics or even the practice of the learning of Judaism, and you could detach God from that picture and still have the Torah, still have Judaism. But I think that's a question that people have, like, is to, can is ethics possible without that kind of grounding. I was taught by my teacher, Earl Schwartz, in, in Talmud Torah, who I've referred to actually back at the beginning. He, he mentioned one of the, the dialogues of Plato, where the question gets asked, is the good good because the gods choose it? Or do the gods choose the good because it's good? And I think we do have these traditions that, you know, some parts of our Torah say you do this stuff because I'm God and I said to do it. And others say the, these laws that I have, they're they're wise, kind of inherently, and they happen to be the laws that I'm choosing to to teach you. But here, we, I think we have this case where the people are like, they're like, okay, at the moment, if they think Michael is the best thing they've got going from the eternal being set, being deprived of him, they don't say, oh my God, this whole thing, like they think they can save it themselves. They think they can do this on their own. Right. They're latching on without, right. If it is my, Vicky and the Michael suit, they're going to figure out a, a way to go on without him. Yeah, it doesn't seem like at any point in this stage they're really contemplating that. Like, I know that they say, like, the whole thing could get ruined or, you know, at the end of this one year, you know, we could all be condemned to the bad place forever. Right. But this episode did not have the feel like that was a real possibility. Like, it didn't seem like a threat that was hovering over them. They were dealing with, like, a situation and they were at least somewhat, they were maybe not comfortable, but they were okay turning the tables on Michael and interrogating interrogating right. Michael, yeah, and, and, right. and Mike, Michael humbling himself, I guess. Right. Well, it was a serious threat to the experiment, but it wasn't like the whole universe was going to fall apart. It's interesting, as you were talking about that source from the Yerushalmi, which I really like, I thought about it not in terms of the ethical rules, but in terms of like spiritual existence, that, that God's saying, if you forget about me, that's okay, because the, you know, the, the leavening in the Torah, or the, if you remember the Torah and you live by it, You'll come, you know, we'll come back, we'll rise up, we'll meet again. And it makes me think a little bit, we're just past the time when we're having this conversation, just past the 50th year site of Abraham Joshua Heschel, who talked a lot about how the structures we build sometimes make God distant and we don't notice. And what Judaism's there for is to make us sensitive to the divine in this world. And as long as we have Judaism, I think might be his read of this text that will come back and connect back with God because Judaism helps point us the way to notice where God is present in our life. It's now interesting that now that you say that, that what Michael's willing to do, which is to point the goo maker at himself, will not actually destroy himself, but will like disintegrate himself. But then, you know, but there will be some period of time where he will get reintegrated. Right, and, but um, maybe shorter if we miss some of the group, maybe shorter. Be a yes. little shorter. Yeah, right. <laughs> and but that's so. Now I'm thinking that what what he's saying is like I also since Michael knows he's Michael, I could disappear and you'd be deprived of me for some period of time. But during that time, I would start to you know come together again. I mean, that's literally what happens to the yeah. You. It gets as well, long as you put it all right. in the right in one container. <laughs> well, Michael also yeah. says you could do this without me. Yeah. And some of this makes me feel, right, we do have these eternal creatures who sometimes are like 
divine creatures. But I think there's an episode, I can't remember, where Jason actually says, well, you're God, right? Yeah. But there's a way and this in which... One, I, think, I, think in the, I think in the previous one where Chidi, where Eleanor is suffering over, over Chidi's, well, torturing Chidi about stuff, and yeah. then he comes back with this situation, and she bursts into tears, and, and he says, oh, my God, I made God cry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That, that was a touching moment. But it makes me think, though, in this scenario, like the theology of the show there's a way in which the divine entities are more like the pantheon of like greek gods mm-hmm. there's not one god there are different gods with different you know there's the god of justice who's the judge and then there's the i don't know the god of the bad place who or, you know who's more like an administrator of the bad yeah. place. <laughs> yes <laughs> but but there are these different entities with different tasks and different skills and different passions that are also running amok and that you know i don't see pulling you know jumping off the screen oh you know parallels to you know the greek pantheon of gods but there's a way in which there's a you know a pantheon of good bad and middle place overseers (laughs) who are in their own existence with their own drama and their own concerns and that reminds me of greek mythology more than uh, Jewish theology. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I think what's what's happened in the the arc, you know, of three plus seasons here, is that we have a moral philosopher acting with this group of people and sort of teaching them some concepts, and and we have you know Michael, who's a demon, did of course bought into none of that before i thought the whole thing was a joke and then like learned it from humans essentially and and there's this nice sort of handing off back and forth which i think is is something of what happens in jewish theology where i think we we say that the divine kind of hands off the world to us but but our our work with it sort of enhances god and i think in this particular statement you know of rabbi here where i was trying to figure out because i really hadn't ever noticed it before where he talks about the leavening in the Torah, which suggests this image of something that's in the process of being created into something more more tasty. Right. When it's farther from God, I guess, is what, you know, could could be in some way it could be almost beneficial for the people to take a step away from that. And now of course in this episode there the step away is like very temporary. It takes place over whatever that afternoon is. But right. uh, but it did get me to wondering and and I've you know I've often tried to when thinking about Jewish ethics and why is Jewish ethics, is it distinct at all? It could either be distinct because there's God involved as a source, or it could be distinct because the Torah is some kind of mechanism for doing that. And I just have never read an argument that convinces me that says that God is necessary, that a, the divine commander is necessary, or divine author of these laws is the, in a literal sense, is the is the way that it has to be. So I've always really been drawn to this teaching, and and I think it's what makes me like the way the the you know Michael and Janet are portrayed is that they don't ever walk around or not after the first season, as though the universe kind of is in their hands entirely, or even that these people's destiny, where they pretty quickly realize mm. you know they don't have control over over these people's destiny, and these people can make decisions about right and wrong, and that are sometimes more real than what the gods so to speak can do right well michael said this recently where he says to eleanor like you guys figured me i had this whole plan and you guys figured me out in three months and then you did it 800 more times (laughs) yeah like that's the piece of like the humans rose above you know that's that's the echo of the tanur shalach nai story where like god says my children have a you know have overcome me right the 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 rabbis out logic god in this story and God is defeated. And there's a way in which Michael said that. But I wonder in this episode, I'm struck by, there was a Glenn moment. Glenn has come to the other side and he rides on the hand powered train (laughs) (laughs) with, you know, a good demon cloak. (laughs) The symbolism to throw you off. That was the thing, right? Who's this person? But it's not, the Glenn is the second of the demons to have a moment of, wait, the system could be wrong. And if the system's wrong, I don't want to play my part in it anymore. He could justify being the penis reinflator to allow for <laughs> re-torture. I think that's his job. Yes. He can justify that because on moral grounds, the people who they're torturing deserve it. And he's beginning to question the reality, which causes him to 
go to the other side. And there's the moral dilemma that, that these divine beings are having. Like they're starting to question the reality of the systems that they have, which has been an arc in the plot, you know, for the last season and a half or so, I think. But uh, now we have another demon who's taking that seriously and saying, I'm jumping ship or I'm jumping train. I'm jumping, <laughs> I'm jumping train and I'm going to, I'm going to go, you know, I ha- I ha- I'm standing on moral ground here where I'm going to go reveal the sabotage to Michael and friends and uh, risk everything to do that because I can't justify my behavior anymore. That's a real ethical decision he makes that brings him to this place. You know, I had the feeling that Glenn was also a ruse. I mean, you know, it sounds like the way you're presenting it, Glenn has overheard what we will learn shortly to be true, which is the the Vicky in a Michael suit. That's a that's a thing that's coming up in the next episode, I guess. And and so presumably Glenn's aware. I guess well, we know that Glenn is aware of that. But does he think that this Michael is the Michael in the suit, or is this, you know, like he just happens to be wrong about which Michael he's looking at? Or is Glenn, or is this another part of the the messing up that, you know, the chaos, if they hadn't figured out, or if Jason, of all people, hadn't figured out about the Janet thing, they would have succeeded in getting, Glenn would have succeeded essentially in getting Michael to, you know, blow himself up. Yeah. And then that could have potentially been an issue or, or, yeah. That's a great question. I do remember there's a good joke when Glenn reconstitutes himself and returns, but I don't remember what stance he takes you know i remember like he's back and like they make a joke out of it i don't know you know three months later i don't know how many episodes it is but i don't remember if he switched teams i think he comes back after everybody switches teams Mm -hmm. yeah yeah we don't know we might never know if glenn is legit or just another sean sabotage effort (laughs) to sow despair and disunity yeah yeah when Michael Shore is on, you'll have to ask him. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it is. It, it, I mean, again, and I'm probably stretching this too far for this purpose, but, but you know, in that sense, Glenn, you know, represents a bit of a pernicious thing, which is that if Glenn, who's attempting to be a voice of, okay, this is how things are actually going now, it's sort of pernicious, you know, when the, it takes a special demon, like, like Michael's play is to essentially to invest in the humans and subordinate himself. And even, as he says, lie you know, he even made up the lie, according to him, he made up the lie about being in a nervous breakdown over the situation just to get Eleanor to, to do things. If that was, you know, machination, like that was a good one. Either way, that plays that plays nicely. And Glenn sort of would represent this idea that the, the gods are so in control, they can even sort of continue to take charge when and sort of dictate the terms. And so what am I trying to say? And uh, I mean, no, that's a mess. No, I don't really have it. <laughs> All right. See, Glenn stifled you. We just don't know. Yeah. And I want very much, I want to love Glenn because he gets so much, you know, dumped on him. Yeah. Well, what I I do, there are these vignettes where we look at some of the demons or right. Some of the demons have their moment where you get to see their character a little bit. And sometimes I think like that, the demon world, it feels like monsters incorporated to me. Like there are all these different monsters and they're different from us. And they're working in a different universe and they have jobs like that, you know, and, and some of them are endearing, you know, when we see the demon world, right. You know, when Sean's not around, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not always evil, you know, especially Glenn gives that perspective. Like I thought I was just doing my job. There are bad people and they're here and they're here to be punished and makes sense. I guess I was thinking is that Glenn is not endearing. And even though you definitely would rather, you know, take his side than Sean, you know, Sean, who's so mean. But yeah, if Glenn represents sort of a lukewarm way for the, you know, supreme being to kind of put themselves at the foundation of what the ethical foundation is. And, you know, that's not that's not a good one either. And I think that there are some attempts to kind of theologize ethics that are just not appealing. They're 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 lukewarm. I don't know. I mean you you and I are probably sort of similar in this is that we perhaps sort of back engineer our our divinity concepts a little bit to fit with what we think the divine human balance should be. And, uh, you know, once you're away from the idea that that God is the self-sufficient source of what makes something ethically good or bad, then a Michael-ish kind of God is an appealing figure if you're going to have to have some eternal, you know, something that's more eternal than us who, who vanish. Yeah. Well, for me, I a long time ago, 
stepped away from the notion that there's a personal God, that God's an entity, that's an individual, you know, because I believe in a God that's much more abstract. Mm -hmm. Therefore, like for me, in terms of ethics, which you raised, most of the ethics in Judaism are universal ethics. And sometimes in the particulars or in the details, Judaism falls in a different place, you know, in the complex scenario from other traditions and cultures. But I think Jewish ethics resonate with other cultures' ethics and are part of the, you know, it's, it's one of the universalist elements of Judaism, where the particular elements of Judaism for me are our rituals, our culture, you know, our way of life, which is different. And those aren't Shabbat, keeping kosher. Those things aren't ethical choices for me. They're, they're spiritual choices. Right. The ethical choices, I think we share much more with other faith traditions. So then some of them are in our sacred tab. They're in the Torah, but that doesn't make them, you know, or one, one version of them from several millennia ago are recorded in the Torah. Mm. They've developed since then. And, and while there's a way that, you know, in our, in our sacred texts, they feel like ours. But when you get down to the core of those ethics and what it means to be ethical, I think we're more like everybody else. Mm. So I like how you said that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> so you were bringing another another lens on this and the and the question of how they're going to deal with this uncertainty over Michael. Yes. So I thought like it, we have this dilemma. Michael and Glenn are presenting different plausible truths about what's going on, and Eleanor, who's in charge, and everybody else, I guess, too, is forced to. They have to decide. And it made me think of the biblical story about. Solomon the king that's become a famous right it's moved from the from the bible to folklore even right Solomon the wise king who's confronted by two women each claiming that a baby is theirs and they want him to adjudicate like who should have the baby and he listens to each of them and he pro proclaims well I can't decide whose it is so we're gonna cut the baby in half and you'll each get half because that seems Fair. And so one of the women says, no, don't do that. She can have the baby. And Solomon awards the, the baby to the, the woman who protested his judgment because only the mother would give up, give up their child in order to see it survive. So that's the biblical tale. You know, and I, there were echoes of that. The context is different, right? <laughs> but yeah. you know, there's the notion of you know, Michael's willingness to self-sacrifice with the goo gun is the determiner for Ellen. Jason has to puzzle out the Janet thing a little more. Jason is like the Sherlock Holmes here. Yeah. <laughs> more than the Solomon. But some of the scenario that they're facing, like Solomon's is, right, they're in a tough, they, they have two people telling different versions of the truth. And there is no access to some all-knowing divine entity that can rule, right? The decision is left in human hands, I guess, with Janet's advice, if <laughs> if they ask her and they have no way to tell and they have to figure out how to, how do we think this through? And now Eleanor is not Solomon, <laughs> neither is Jason, but sort of in their own ways, they each have to puzzle through what they've seen to try to reach a conclusion about who to believe, who's telling the truth, how do we move forward? And some of that is imperfect. I mean, even imperfect so that we said processing it, we don't even know if Glenn's telling the truth. Or right, he is he an honest character or is he dishonest but telling the story to so further, you know, discontent. So we're puzzled like they are. I don't know. There's something about how Michael's willing to self-sacrifice, you know, led Eleanor to say, Oh, no, now I know. Echoed for me that Solomon story. So Yeah, I really love that frame because I think it as you say, they they have they have lots of information from the past. I mean, they the first time in, in season two, they had to make their leap of faith in Michael. Eleanor was sort of proposing, I think, evidence for this. And along with a bit of, you know, he just seems like the kind of guy who would be there for us. And against that backdrop, I was sort of like, wow, she's really grilling him. Like, she's not willing to, to say, well, you know, uh, because I guess they've been giving this alternative theory. Maybe it's not Michael. So the difference yeah. is, you know, I guess in that in that issue, it was, you know, has Michael changed back? And here it's, we don't even know whether we've got Michael in front of right. us at all. And, uh, and when he essentially proves that he is Michael. So in that sense, Jason's move, you know, sort of deprived us of a of an interesting uh, right. 
you know, what would have happened, you know, that it's a sort of like Michael's pushing them all through the portal in the bad place and staying behind. Oh, yeah. 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 Which is the movie. But I think Michael brings it up. Like I spent, I mentioned some of these before I spent this episode with questions about continuity and without the Janet, how does this neighborhood keep functioning? I had a series of these questions that like, wait, this isn't gelling for me in terms of the timeline. <laughs> so I get to the end of the episode, Janet's in handcuffs and it's as if like, right. There wasn't the soundtrack, but I felt like, you know, the music came on the end. We're about to end happy. And I was like, wait, we still don't know if it's Michael or not. Mm. And then before it's over, Michael says, wait, you still don't know if it's really me. Oh, yeah. And for me, it was like, I thought that was powerful because, well, one, I'm glad the show didn't end before that because that would have, <laughs> I wouldn't have been happy if they, the whole plot was, is it Michael or not? And then at the end, we just forget about it. Yeah. But, yeah. But, Everyone was so focused on Janet and, you know, Jason's realization that they didn't bring that up, but Michael put it back on the table. Like, and that was his moment of, you know, authentic honesty or radical honesty. He's like, okay, this is good that we discovered that we have the wrong Janet, but that doesn't solve your problem that you don't know if I'm me or not. And mm -hmm. like, oh, that's like, to me, that's also like the mother saying, I'll give up my claim on the baby. Like Michael saying, I'll, you know. Uh, I, I'm not willing to let you forget the fact that you're not sure if you can trust me or not. I thought that was a powerful move. At yeah, the end. yeah, it is. You know, last time I taught the Solomon story that you're giving us to adults, I thought this is supposed to be the indication, the proof that he's such a wise king, that he came up, or that he was a wise person, that he came up with a solution when, as you say, he didn't have any other evidence. So he basically went to Mido, to virtues and qualities, and he tested their, instead of testing the evidence, he tested their their character, I guess. Yeah. And, and then I thought, but is this all that brilliant? Like, wouldn't anybody have come up with that? And No, that's more generous than me. I always yeah. think, like, Solomon's like a buffoon. Like, he doesn't do such, he does get to build the temple, but I, he's not my favorite biblical character. Like, I don't find a lot to love of Solomon. And I have these moments of thinking, Maybe he meant that. Maybe, like this was an accident. Maybe he was stuck and he thought, well, I can't decide. So I'll give each half. That sounds fair. And he didn't think it through. And, you know, luckily one of the women stepped forward to say, no, don't do that. And he, you know, he stumbled into this solution as if like, there's no evidence to say he thought about this from the beginning. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I don't always read him so generously that like, you know, maybe he's a buffoon of a king and this just turned out well. And then because he's Solomon, it gets in the Tanakh and then we love him for it. But like, you know, really, I don't really like this story or any of its implications. <laughs> yeah, I guess or that's true yeah, and Eleanor we like better. <laughs> At least this version of Eleanor that we have, you know, it's not. Yes. A, it's not. Well, a she embraces the buffoony part of her. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's she true. doesn't hide it. <laughs> yeah, but she does turn the table. You know, it is interesting because she. We've talked about how you know recent Michael will have these moments of, of being a tall older male, you know, kind of mentor to sort of gently position himself in Eleanor's presence and sort of give her wise advice. But, and as you're saying, she can do that to Chidi, but here's a place where, where she goes to Michael and says, you know, that's the most Michael thing you can do. So that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's redeeming. And it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of times now our dilemma is that in a lot of public life, particularly where we have people who we have thought about as admirable, and then we're con confronted with evidence that they are not as admirable or they do bad things. And, you know, usually if you're already disposed to think that someone has, you know, good qualities and virtues, you'll want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And so I like in the sense that the show doesn't assume that you can do that, because sadly, we've been we've been burned by that. You can't yeah. you can't assume that kind of truth and virtue, you know, always go together. There was a lot of nuance, I thought, in this in this particular thing. Eleanor yeah. did not have the answer, right? She didn't she did not get to the answer on her own at all. Right. Well, she trusts in Michael acting like Michael. There's proof in like he does a Michaelish thing that Vicky couldn't have done. Yes, yes. Unless you think that that was unless you know this was diabolical Vicky knowing that they would never let him actually point the thing at him. You know, like that could have been a that right. could have been a, a well, game, you know a going. chicken a very high, you know, <laughs> right.
you know, because I mean, it's you know, Glenn is. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, being turned into blue goo is better than being unzipped into a flaming, you know, monster. And, right. Uh, well, that also made me question: Did Bad Janet? She said she made the gun as a truth teller. Hmm. That's why I think you can believe Glenn. She said this gun is a lie detector, hmm. but it turned out to be a demon gooifier, hmm. and I think the Bad Janet gooified Glenn because. He's not part of the sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> she wants to take him off the, that it didn't malfunction, that that's what it was supposed to do. Cause she, Glenn was undermining her ability to be the bad Janet mm-hmm. or to be the good Janet, the whatever to being <laughs> bad Janet being the good Janet. Who's trying to destroy the experiment. Yeah. When we talk about the different ethical philosophies and we deal sometimes in the realm of assessing facts as they are and sometimes working on what are, what do we know about the character of the people around you know and who are involved and this is this is a nice move to say but what they've been doing is they've been conducting an investigation of you know do they have enough evidence and and you know even does the fact that michael's admission of his lies impugn his character and i think you know we've well established you know once again that he's a complicated you know he's He's a person of good, or not a person, he's a being of good intentions who who doesn't have a spotless record, you know, who's manipulative right. you know, for good purposes. And how do you how do you make a judgment about that? And and again, I think you know, Jewish ethics is not extremist about that. There are there are gonna be situations where you encounter each other as being overall good, but the bad things that happen don't. So that's that that's kind of that dilemma yeah. too. With, well, our characters, the Tanakh the Bible is full of flawed characters. The Talmud is too. We don't have heroes who are pure. We have people who do heroic things. Mm. And sometimes in the next chapter, they do awful things. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. In this situation, it's not just a question of, you know, getting out of this moment. Okay, the experiment isn't ruined, but you know, they need Michael still to be Michael. They need him for the future, you know, also. Yeah. You know, it's. I was thinking when you introduced this before we got on about this teaching of in Pirkei Avot that, that I think we've probably talked about, about the idea of judging people with a positive bias, putting your Don Lechaf Sechud, if you sort of imagine the scales of judgment, if they're balanced to decide to to judge someone more favorably. And our friend Maimonides, in his commentary on this, says basically, but you start with an assumption. If you have a well-established, a well-founded belief that a person is good or a person is evil, then you can legitimately take that into account in terms of what's going on. If you encounter someone who you have thought of and has proven themselves to be good and you see them do a bad thing, you can definitely question, you can definitely ask whether the one bad thing is just a an aberration. Yeah. But if you see someone who you've thought of as, you know, been bad <clears throat> and they do one good thing, and this in a sense is Glenn, you know, the fact that they seem to be doing a good thing, judging them favorably doesn't mean that you erase that whole that whole past bit. And no, that's um, fair. Yeah. I never thought about that with Glenn. And no, and I and I've I sort of puzzled on that a bit as to whether that is that is that would that be considered favorable judgment? The second one doesn't sound like favorable. It sounds like, you know, be cautious, trust but verify. And right. Um, what makes me think of two I almost said Michael Michael McDonald, but the, he's from the Doobie Brothers. I meant Malcolm McDowell <laughs> the author. Like he just wrote he wrote Blink, which was about trust Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. That's who you meant. Oh, no, sorry. Malcolm McDowell's the actor. <laughs> so we got doobie brothers we got thank you malcolm a lot of malcolms yeah <laughs> a lot of malcolms which may or may not be edited out of this podcast <laughs> malcolm gladwell in blink i'm oversimplifying it's not the simple but it says trust your gut sometimes your snap judgments you know your first instinct about people you should go with and then the other side of that is he wrote about after in, in talking to strangers which is about sometimes when we rely on our gut and our predisposing inclinations, things go awry. And like lots of things are wrong in our society because of unexamined biases that come from our gut. I guess the postmodern world that we find ourselves in today, we're re-examining things that we as a civilization, like Western civilization has thought we could determine about what's good, what's bad, how you judge people, how you don't judge people. Like the fact, you know, the ways in which we're discovering there are biases in the system that are so deep that they affect individuals and you know when we think we're not biased we're much more biased than we are like a lot of the complexities about judgment and judging are not as simple as we thought and some of them modern people like malcolm gladwell Mm. wrote about (laughs) is writing about i think it's changing the conversation and some of the texts we used to go to 
while nice and familiar, might not be the ones in which we're going to find the answers because we're entering a new way of thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that even the good place neighborhood, which is such a simplified version of reality, is where these kinds of uh, where these kinds of nuances come into play. Like we really don't know about Glenn. There's enough and and, and again right. about Michael. And it's interesting because I was I was thinking about this idea of judging favorably. We've talked about the Brent character as being somehow a little bit drawn from the the news story about Justice Kavanaugh before his confirmation and and a lot of people are like, you know, this guy's been a, you know, he's been a mentor to women and, and his clerks and done, you know, this and that good thing. It's not, you know, can't we just assume that that's the story and not the stuff that he's been accused of doing when he was a, when he was a young adult. And so it's really hard to apply these yeah. judgment filters because you, because what we really wanted was to know for sure. And, and we don't know for sure. And I think that what's, I think, tugging on me right now, this has come up before, and, and I, I know that this is not in the intentions of the writers at all, but the idea that the only way you can prove your goodness, like in a crunch when there's uncertainty, is through self-sacrifice, is that that's the only move that can really prove your goodness, that that's, that seems problematic. And I think that so, some would say that that seems like a Christian thing. The world, there's so much corruption in the world that even the divine will sacrifice God's self. Like that's the that's the ultimate act of kind of truth and loyalty. And and I know that they're not pushing Christianity, you know, through this show. But it seems like we're not given in this universe a proof that's short of that. Somebody has to be willing right. to destroy themselves. And that's what Michael has done, or that's when we talk about Chidi. Like, you have to go to extremes. And short of that, we're in this realm where you can't make, you know, shaded judgments. And that rubs me, you know, as too simple and also as, like, that actually is not a helpful way to resolve this question of judging in uncertainty. Right. right. The, the notion that what you do when your back is up against the wall is what you're judged on, as opposed to, you know, your your entire body of work or your day to day. Although the show is exploded the flaws with, right? The, the, the flaw of counting your, you know, counting points based on everything you do every moment doesn't work because it's hard to make the rules right so that the points mm -hmm. work out right. But your point out also, it can't just be that under pressure, you know, because sometimes, right, there are plenty of stories about like someone's good, untested, and makes a really hard and questionable decision in not normal circumstances under a lot of pressure, which I don't know, ruins them or doesn't or what, yeah. you know, it depends yeah. on what the literature says. But sometimes the argument there is you can't judge a person by what they do in those tough moments because those aren't normal moments. Mm, yeah. you're, you're not in balance. You're not you. You're, you know, your brain is fine. You, you know, your, your body and your brain are giving you all these messages. You're in danger and you might do something you regret later because you're not fully in control. Whereas, you know, yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. what this show is saying, you know, yeah, those, yeah, usually not yet. Yeah. You know. And I think, in the, you know, in your Solomon story, I guess the, the mother, the true mother does say, fine, I, I will entirely 100% renounce this baby if that's what it takes yeah. to save its life, you know, so that goes against the way that I presented this as only a Christian inflected kind of thing. But if the mother in that story had said, okay, fine, we're, let's not cut the baby in half, let's find a a third neutral mother. You know, to, oh, yeah. To take it. You know, that wouldn't have seemed as maybe not as satisfying in a narrative sense. Right. Well, I always wonder what would happen if neither woman spoke up. Would they have killed a baby? Mm. Like, that's like, was he really going to go through with it? Because they could both say, he's not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's not going to do it. Like, let's just wait and we'll have to have a retrial, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I think this is a this is an interesting moment there, and I think that if I were to unify the the couple of threads that we've talked about, right? Even even making judgment, even humans making judgment about God, you know, saying good or bad is not really a binary thing. And I I think in in Judaism that works. You know, there's there's not a there's not a neat tidy package for that, and then an ethical coherence doesn't doesn't depend on there being that. Yeah, that's true. So we've dealt with some theology and some ethics. I just thought, I don't want to let this moment go, because there's also a little bit about aesthetics in mm -hmm. this episode that maybe belonged on my list of things that made me chuckle. But in the middle there in that Eleanor Chidi scene, Eleanor, while she's channeling Michael or an art, she's channeling an architect when she's, you know, with, she's not just being her, she's being the architect. And she says, you know, 
the best things humans ever invented were nachos. <laughs> and Chidi says, well, that's not true. She's like, well, what's better? He's like, the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, no, that's just paint on a ceiling. Like nachos, those are good. And that, that's a good bit. But had there not been so much about ethics in this episode, I wonder, there's a lot about aesthetics there. Like, are nachos more aesthetically pleasing? Is that a better invention? Because of, you know, we all have access to nachos, but we don't all have access to the Sistine Chapel. Like, <laughs> assuming we accept those two and we can compare them, you know, and we can get through the, the silliness of that moment, I think they raised a good aesthetic question too about like, what's a worthy creation, you know, mm. what's, you know, what's good in the aesthetic sense. And, you know, if nachos giving me, fun, you know, I, I, I've never been to this. I've only seen pictures of the Sistine Chapel and I've had a lot of nachos <laughs> <laughs> and I can say nachos is a pretty good invention. And maybe I would, if I had to pick one and I would keep the nachos and not the Sistine Chapel because it's good. And anyways, that could be a whole other discussion for us, but I didn't want to let that one go. But I, you know, since we didn't do it earlier, I left it at the end so that I leave it in the hands of the editor. If you want to close <laughs> on this note or leave it on the floor of the digital. Well, actually, no, that's, it's, it's good because we've talked it. we're going to put together somehow among us an episode about, about food and the good place and food and chuva. And there've been so many kind of lush parties and uh, chowder fountains and nacho but all of it and even this is yeah not just in the whole other category so i'll have to put that in there you know comfort oh, food and, nice. and yeah so all right that's a great a great scene nice. there's some good guests who are in the jewish ethics and food space if you really want to do a yeah who do you show. who you think who are you thinking of well anybody at mazon hmm. or chazon all the zones. I was actually thinking of like food, foodiness, you know, like food, food, ga you know, gathering. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, there's also, there's, you know, a whole number of, you know, Jewish foodies and cookbook writers, right? If you want to go for that, there's there again, there's the ethics and the aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. There you go. All right. Elliot, great to talk to you. It's nice to be here. I'm just recently added to the snippet of my bio, the occasional co-host of the Tove podcast so because I am an occasional so like <laughs> I feel like it's good to be here but now I feel like you said in the first one where I said thanks for having me you said oh no this is our thing I was yeah, like no nah, it's here once but like nah, I've been back so I, I, I feel that communitarian spirit about this is our I mean it wouldn't have happened without you but I'm glad to be a regular presence in the other chair and I'm going to say the opposite of let's have coffee, which is let's do another podcast soon. And I'm going to yeah. mean it. And I, mean it. <laughs> I you're going to say, I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. All right. And so we conclude another episode of Tove, and thank you for listening. We've got show notes for this episode and other general resources related to Jewish ethical vocabulary and texts at tovegoodplace.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe and give us a good rating, and tell people about it who love The Good Place with your own word of mouth or by social media. Ours is at Tove Good Place, and we'd love to hear from you there or by email, tove at tovegoodplace.com. You can get Elliot Goldberg's pieces on the Daily Talmud page at myjewishlearning.com. Click on the Daf Yomi link at the very top of the page. And you can follow him on Twitter at Elliot underscore Goldberg. I'm John Spirisavet, rabbijohn.net, and at rabbijs3. And check out my home base, Beth Abraham in New Hampshire, tbanashua.org. Thanks again for making time for us. Now go learn more about something good. Bum 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 bum.